if you had a magic wand and could change things about modern leaders, what would you pick? Pry them open and, and make them come face to face, right up close and personal with their own vulnerability. Friction is a huge psychological burden. Without friction, we would not have fire and we would not have sparks. I gotta get a knife. <laughs> I gotta hide it. I end up spending a lot of time ruminating. Hi, I'm Bob Sutton. I'm an organizational psychologist and Stanford professor, and this is the Friction Podcast. On today's episode, we're joined by Nancy Kane. She's a Harvard Business School professor, a historian, and most important for today, she's author of Forged in Crisis. This wonderful book tells the story of five famous leaders who showed extreme courage and persistence in difficult times. We invited Nancy to the podcast because she has such a fresh perspective on power and strength. Nancy's work shows how many of our most prized leaders Leaders who've led nations and groups through the most difficult times draw clarity, strength, and magnetism from their own vulnerability and emotional awareness. How do you define friction? What are some of the emotional connotations for you? So I think of friction as a combination of, you know, volatility and uncertainty, certainly, unexpected complexity, the ambiguity that goes with it. And in the book, each of the people in this book finds themselves guilty of and surrounded by lots of friction. And then in the midst of that, and in the midst of the high waves and the fast winds of the storms of crisis, they Uh figure out how to dial that down by making themselves thoughtful resilient, broad-looking, and emotionally aware and forbearing individuals in all that. And guess what? The friction around Uh, them declines, and their effectiveness in achieving a mission increases. So so I I love that definition. That's just eloquent and beautiful. Now I want to move to a definition you put in the the book. Uh, This is by David Foster Wallace, who I never (laughs) thought as a management theorist. I thought that he was the author of Infinite Jest. Right. The definition, which I I literally, you know, cut and pasted from an article he wrote for Rolling Stone many years ago, you know, a nonfiction (laughs) article he wrote for Rolling Stone called Up Simba, in which he's following on the campaign bus John McCain around during his first presidential. Presidential run, and he gets riffing. Wallace is a guy who riffs, a writer who riffs. He's riffing on leadership, and he says, real leaders are individuals who help us overcome the limitations of our own weaknesses and selfishness and laziness and fears and get us to do harder, better things than we can get ourselves to do on our own. And I read this, and I just, it like hit Uh me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, that's a leader, right? They're unlocking, yep. they're pushing us beyond what we think we're capable of, and all kinds of things are possible when that happens. So I just stole that with lots of good footnotes and and then started really digging into it as I thought about the people and their emotional growth and, and forging in these stories. There's lots of examples in the book where uh, making things harder to do, slowing down are better. So what are some of the upsides of friction and how does it help your courageous leaders and their followers? So I think 
Frederick Douglass understood the answer to that question very, very well, right? He understood how extraordinarily embedded, for example, slavery was and the, you know, moral and political and social and psychological, you know, you know, negative consequences that flowed from that in the face of all kinds of economic benefits for certain stakeholders. But what he did with that, with the friction that he encountered around slavery was to acknowledge it, name it, Right. Mm. To talk about, you know, those who want progress without the mighty roar, right, of protest and activism want, you know, the ocean without the waves. You can't, right, embrace a mighty cause without also, you know, acknowledging and using the friction around that cause. You can't do it without the leader and the people around him framing uh-huh. the stakes of that friction, understanding what's good, what's bad, and what are the trade-offs. That friction can be incredibly useful, incredibly important to helping the leader make his or her case for that mission, and then in some cases mobilizing people around the friction to help achieve it. As they delve deeper and deeper into what they're trying to do and how difficult it's going to be, and by the way, how satisfying, right, some of that difficulty is in itself, is I'm not just doing this for my narcissistic, you know, bing-bing, right? This isn't just ka-ching, ka-ching on the narcissistic meter. There are other people that I can serve and make stronger or move forward the boulder of goodness. And that bridge from I to thou or I to we I to thou. is really important. Actually, what it reminded me of is uh, one of my colleagues, Frank Flynn, has done research on how often the most effective leaders and the leaders who suffer the most are the ones who feel really guilty and are constantly worried about other people. And, and the degree to which that was a theme throughout the book just amazed me. Yeah, it's all over the book. And I think I think that the, the reason it's all over the book is because really effective leaders have to be able to motivate others, including their enemies, including the obstacles in their yep. path, right? And they have to have cultivate a sense of empathy and then access that and use that to navigate around their enemies or over their enemies and to bring their followers together in some kind of cohesive, we hopefully highly functioning group. That's critical for Lincoln's cabinet and his generals. That's critical for Shackleton keeping uh-huh. the crew alive. It's critical for Rachel Carson, right? As she's trying to, be, she's. I mean, just like so many of the folks you work with, the, the diaspora of high tech folks. She has a diaspora of scientists and, and oh, it's amazing, and, and, and biologists and you know fishermen and all kinds of people. She needs information from. She needs advice from. And if she can't reach into herself and try and understand these folks. She can't really move forward her mission, which is not the Petri dish or the incubator of a new company, but it's the incubator for an astoundingly important theory of environmental right interconnectingness and sustainability uh-huh. that's going to launch the modern environmental movement. So how do you, as a young CEO or a young mm-hmm. COO, how do you understand and feel for and use that ability to connect with the piece of yourself and relate it to what other people are going through, stand in another's shoes, to really not only do what you want to do, but help make your mission or the mission of the startup the mission that is identified and aligned with the people that are going to push it forward because you can't do it alone. 
And maybe that's the most yep. important thing that these people realize. They can't do it alone. They, and they, there are no Superman in vacuo successes. And so they have uh-huh. to be able to really manage the energy of their folks. And that means you're acting from a great sense of effective, right, credible empathy. Yeah, so I love the effect of incredible empathy, and and uh, it does dovetail with the. I mean, one one of at least my mottos is that uh, innovation is a social process, and so is change. <laughs> yeah. and, and and it's very. It, it isn't just the leaders. I I was completely struck. I, I, social network theorists would call this brokers. Rachel Carson's ability to weave together people from remarkably diverse networks, uh, their ideas, to do sort of knowledge brokering, to essentially both develop a strong case for what she was doing and to create legitimacy for what she was doing, given how little she had to start with, was absolutely striking. I was just astounded that is by a, it. I never thought of it that way. That's a brilliant analysis of what she did. So think of Lincoln's second inaugural. This is the speech he gives with the with the ending that we all know so well. He delivers it on March 4th, 1865. Right. The war's just about finished. Unbelievable bloodshed. Talk about toxicity and divisiveness and, you know, blaming the other. I mean, America... This is, you know, America's situation today is is, is a, mi- a mild, much milder version of yep. what the country underwent then. And Lincoln writes at the very end, you know, of this speech, with malice toward none, with charity toward all, with firmness in the right mm-hmm. as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all that we can to cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. So what's he doing there? He's calling Americans to the better angels of their nature. He's saying, let's transcend this. It is our war, not the South's war, not the North's war, and we are mm-hmm. to move beyond it now without vindictiveness and, and with forgiveness. And so that is Lincoln asking, exhorting, inspiring people to do better, harder things than their first instinct, than their first emotion than their first wish to lash out would dictate. This notion of slowing down and thinking about doing the right thing rather than going with your worst first impulse is something that I see throughout the book. And and it's really striking, as you say, given the temptations of social media and uh, instant gratification, how how striking it is, the power of sitting and thinking and, and also not doing things. Uh, one of the main bits of advice we've learned from studying startups is uh, it co- actually comes from research on medical decision making, which is sometimes the best advice is uh, don't just do something. Stand there and think about what the heck you really <laughs> should do instead of going with your gut reaction. Well, I, I think you nailed it, right? I'm talking to my MBA students about this in an authentic leadership course I'm teaching in the uh-huh. second year right now, which is how do leaders use the written word? And particularly, I think, writing in longhand, not necessarily typing on our phones because we think differently. It's Research is beginning to demonstrate a little bit more creatively, a little bit less, uh-huh. a little bit more fungibly and, and, and more and more effective in an exploratory vein when we write with longhand. How do leaders use writing, even just 
for themselves to parse out, mm-hmm. right, their next move, their thoughts, their possibilities, right, how to get stuff done. And to, for Lincoln, what, what should I do about the war? I mean, he writes these, me- you know, kind of right. notes to self. Carson and her letters to friends, all these people are trying to figure stuff out, sometimes that only they can parse out, and the written word turns out to be really helpful because it teaches us to think. So you make this interesting claim, this notion that leaders are made, not born. And and one thing I like about the book that's beautiful is how uh, for each of the five leaders, you, you go through their childhood and early experiences. Tell us a little bit more about uh, what made them develop this ability to persevere yeah. and to inspire and protect others. The first is a commitment that they discover or access relatively early on, not, not you know, from birth. I mean, these people aren't sprung from the mm-hmm. river of Zeus saying, hey, forge me into something better. <laughs> but, you know, they, they, each of them at different moments in their relative, the, you know, in the first kind of third of their life say, mm-hmm. I can get better. You know, Lincoln wants to rise politically. Yep. And from that comes another piece that I think is attached, and that is that they also realize, usually after they stumble or they fall down or something, you know, friction or some kind of untoward, unexpected result from that occurs for them, that they can learn something about themselves that will be highly useful, that they can learn it and then hone it. So Carson learns early on the power of what I call, you know, gathering years when nothing is happening on her bucket uh-huh. list, but she's soaking stuff in and saying, hmm, I might use that later. I can make, I can learn from this person. I can learn from this particular scientific possibility. So she's like a squirrel, like, you know, gathering these uh-huh. nuts about herself that she can use without having to kind of see the results immediately. The first thing is I can get, I can make myself better, not just better, better on the external achievement list, better from the inside out. And we don't teach this at the business school. Uh-huh. So we're not, we're not teaching this at Harvard, and we need to be. So sure. that is something that really came through to me. I had no idea that these, in some cases, someone as iconic as Lincoln or iconic uh-huh. as Frederick Douglass, I had no idea how, how they had these moments when they were just ready to pack it all in, right? Yeah. Every leader knows that we all meet these moments when, we, when we're, we just don't know what to do next, and we're ready to consider giving up. And, and yet, if the leader gives up at those moments, the whole damn thing comes crashing down. So mm-hmm. this idea that just the next small step, no matter how small and no matter uh. how confused the leader is when he or she makes it, is huge. You can't always see how important it is at the moment, but historians get paid to look backwards and understand this. So this is really important for leaders today, aspiring, established, and those that just want to get bigger and more luminous and more decent in what they're doing to understand that the next step, no matter how small, is sometimes the whole damn game. The, the essence of these stories is ultimately about emotional awareness. They were all born intelligent. They all had good hard drives. But it turns out that when the stakes are high and turbulence is all around and things don't always go according to plan, what will help you navigate, what will make you stronger, what will bring other people along with you actually isn't a revert to the, to the spreadsheet. It's not that that doesn't matter. It's just that mm-hmm. that is no longer sufficient by any, any means. And it's certainly 
in times of volatility when the waves are high, not going to get people to do harder, better things than they can get themselves to do on their own. These people forge themselves and their missions and other huh. people into better versions of themselves largely because they, are, they, they, they discovered – Right, that emotional tools and particularly discipline and awareness are so useful and vital to getting hard stuff done when the volatility meter goes up. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that one of the things I've learned coaching executives, so I'm I'm teaching emotional awareness to MBAs for the first time right now. It's absolutely mm-hmm. compelling. One really interesting doorway in is describe your worst people nightmare that you've ever had, <laughs> right? And then That's describe <laughs> with the left side of your brain what it cost you, uh-huh. right? So you link the the numbers and the balance sheet and the and the highly developed part of their, their hard drive there uh-huh. with, with p- the messiness and the humanity and the complexity of building teams, right? Keeping them going when someone stumbles or they turn toxic or the doubting Thomas gets contagious or whatever. Uh-huh. And then they can suddenly go, hmm, that's interesting. I didn't really necessarily have the app for that. And so then you get people really interested, often retrospectively, but then they use that, 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 that interest to open the door proactively or going forward, which is, hmm, what do I need to know about myself? To help myself, to help me be a better uh-huh. kind of leader of my folks, to deal with what we call, think of the language here, the softer side of business, which ultimately turns out in lots of critical moments to be the the whole enchilada, not necessarily for very, or the harder part, really for the for, the, for not necessarily for the whole duration of the enterprise, but an enterprise can live or die based in some moments on the shoot, if you will, it's going through of its people and the challenges of that. And so I've had great no, success I, coaching people with that doorway. Part of this, and it's fascinating, you're teaching courses on authentic leadership right now. One of the things that struck me was, I'm not an expert on stoicism or anything, but the degree to which throughout the book you had these leaders who would disguise and hide their fears. They would be depressed, but would put on like a a happy act. And sometimes in the case of Lincoln, they'd even lie. So. So on the one hand, you know, we've got like emotional intelligence and all that stuff. And the other hand, we have authentic leadership. But uh, some of the things that these folks did did not fit my definition of authentic leadership. So maybe you can help me here. Uh, yeah, it's a great question. And I, 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 I would define authentic leadership as people who are, have, have their mission and their actions aligned, authentic, aligned with their deepest values. Now, that is true of every person in this book. And, yep. and, and, and so how, how do you make sense of, say, Lincoln not walking out when he was, you know, ready to kill himself, which he said he was at several points during the right. presidency because he was so despairing about the military fortunes of the North? How do you square that with someone who would, who, who would you know, square his shoulders and walk out and try and look confident on the streets of Washington? And, and, and the way you square that is to say Lincoln had his doubts and he had his fears and he wrote about them. Mm-hmm. He shared them with close confidants. But he would say to you, as he said to some senators, do you think? it helps anyone if I walk out right now before my generals, before my citizens, Uh and look like I believe the entire war is lost. I will actually increase the chances that the war is lost and the the great suffering that ensues increases if I do that. So these are people who understood 
that that alignment with your mission and staying true to your mission involves leading yourself from that place. And that's what they did. It's not that they tried to obfuscate or ignore their own difficulties or the difficulties of what they were doing. It's that they always believed that their forbearance was a tool they could use even while they cultivated emotional honesty. Emotional honesty and authenticity are not exactly the same as how we show up. So with that in mind, if you had a magic wand and could change things about modern leaders, what would you pick? So you just get one. Pry them open and and make them come face-to-face, right up close and personal with their own vulnerability. Ooh, I I love that. And that's both, both, you've got to work on them to be stronger. And also, one thing that runs throughout your book is finding the people uh, who can offset your vulnerabilities to work with you. And think of Lincoln's famous uh, cabinet, you know, sort of like the team of rivals. They had offsetting skills, just astounding. But we can't do that until we know what our vulnerabilities are, right? And then can compensate for them, as you point out. So, Nancy, it's been a delight to talk to you. She's the author of Forged in Crisis, a book I recommend that you read. Thank you so much, Nancy. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. The one thing that I hope you will take away from Nancy is the importance of slowing down and processing your emotions. Leaders who want to move through extreme challenges have to face their emotions and the emotions of those they lead head on. Please spread the word about the Friction Podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues, your family, and even your therapists. On the next episode, we'll be joined by Eric Reese. Eric is renowned for sparking the lean startup movement. Eric's going to talk about bringing an entrepreneurial mindset to large organizations. We can't do this without you. Tell us what's driving you crazy and what are you doing to make life better in your organization for yourself and for the people that you work with. Please send us your friction stories, tips, and tricks. We'd love to hear from you via Twitter at eCorner, or please send us an email at stvp-ecorner at stanford.edu. And now for the final tangent. Shackleton, right, on the stranded on the iceberg. He's, his ship goes down in 1915. He's got 27 men and, you know, three lifeboats and no ways and no text messages and no Facebook posts. And no one knows where he is. And he's got to somehow keep these men alive and with very few resources. And, and, it uh-huh. turned, and what he is able to do is to keep on, if you will, strengthening his own muscles of conviction and courage, and then to use that to help instill in the men their own sense, literally contagious from him, mm-hmm. that they can do this, that they can keep on keeping on, that they can stay cohesive as a unit, because a big piece of this story is the fact that the Lord of the Flies syndrome doesn't take hold. I mean, they they hang in there together. It makes a huge difference. And years later, when the survivors from the they all survived. When the people uh-huh. were looking back on the on the voyage and how they how they lived, they all said the boss made us believe that we could do it. The Friction Podcast is a Stanford E Corner original series brought to you by Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Designing Organizational Change. 
Friction is produced by Rachel Jilkowski and Ali Rico. Jake Smith and Stife Studios are our editor and audio engineers. Susie Allen and Victoria Johnson are our writing and marketing team. Danielle Stusi is our designer and digital products manager. And I'm Bob Sutton. Thanks for joining us. This is the Friction Podcasts.